Hello and welcome to the 212 podcast where we try and bring a bit of joy into some of the work that the art and events industry brings to everyone. It may be gloom out there, but it's a bloom in here with the different uh, ventures and paths people have chosen in this very, very bizarre little time. Um, I heard a event director that's gone in to be a chef this week. Um, who would have thought? So um, our next guest uh, on the podcast this week is a Brit that has managed events and activations in three continents, including the tick off the list places such as Canada and Australia, but now resides in Japan managing events and activations as the lead for his current company in the APAC region. As well as this, uh, he runs his own set on NTS Radio, which you should definitely check out. It's very, very good. Um, he has an unconventional ride into events and activations. And we will hear some of that today. Um, and please welcome Adam Dawson. How are Hello. you and where are you today? Hey, Dan. I'm very well, thanks. Uh, I am just sitting at my kitchen table in my apartment in Tokyo. I just got back from a physiotherapy session and uh, enjoying using this opportunity to take some time off work. Beautiful. Um, how long have you lived there now for? Uh, I've been here for coming up to three years. I've moved out in January 2018 so yeah in January it will be three years. As we touched upon just there kind of with the different um, obviously you've got all these varied interests but all the also the the varied jobs that you've done um, and the different industries you worked in how did you get into events and how did you get into I guess segue into that events to DJing to activations it's quite a it's quite a path there how did you get into all of those? Actually so I think for me, my, my path was actually music first. So I was already kind of, you know, into music as a kid and was, was actively kind of, you know, getting myself interested in different types of music. Um, and I think just out of the circumstances of where I grew up, that's quite key to, to, to the path that I ended up taking. Um, where did you where grow? I grew up? I grew up uh, in Canterbury, which is just an hour south east of London. Um, at the time when I grew up, Canterbury's always had quite a rich musical history um, in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. It had um, a kind of what people refer to as the Canterbury scene, which is a group of bands that came up um, either locally, as in they grew up locally or via one of the universities there. Um, and they kind of created a sound which was, I guess, a, a variant of progressive rock. Um, and that then ended up kind of being like a a worldwide sound that people are familiar with um you know like quite frequently any any decent record shop you go in will either have some of the records or maybe even a canterbury section so um it's always had this kind of rich musical history and a bit of a counterculture aspect to it and while i was growing up there when i was about sort of, i guess from the age my first time i got involved in this kind of thing when i was 15 but from the ages of about 15 till when i was maybe 20 21 um, that area was was the kind of outdoor rave capital of the UK. So I ended up kind of just by kind of meeting people and skateboarding around the city, meeting different groups of friends and that kind of thing. Ended up kind of getting invited to one of these parties and turning up and then just kind of having my, my young mind blown about this, this huge kind of diverse group of people out, you know, dancing in the middle of the forest. You know, and that was my kind of introduction to to events in general I guess you know before that I've been to a few few concerts because um you know I, already, I was already very interested in music and we you know I was frequently going out to London with friends to go and watch different bands play and that kind of thing but that was my exposure to seeing events that people would kind of organize themselves DIY 
Um, maybe before that, I've been to a few sort of DIY concerts where, you know, kind of local hardcore bands and that kind of thing had thrown something together. But That's probably a really good kind of not ba- kind of baptism of fire you've got the kind of no red tape to the red tape now of of some of the activations and and stuff that you've done now I guess because there's so much oh, legislation I so. around I guess you saw uh, with the raves and stuff I guess you saw the um I, I guess just more organic it wasn't kind of meticulously thought out it was just sometimes it would probably be you know show up to this spot and we'll and we'll have a good time well, actually, that's that's a quite fascinating thing about it. Like the the, the organisation was meticulous. Um, it was it was kind of mind blowing the efforts that people went to. And I guess you know, yeah, there's rather than there being an absence of red tape, I guess you're either kind of climbing over it or going underneath it. But um, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know, I used to I started going to these these parties, and you know, by that point, I was already you know, growing up in the UK, it's quite hard to escape kind of electronic dance music anyway. And um, you know, you grow up. If you're kind of our, our generation you grow up hearing rave music in the charts and um you know it's kind of inescapable so to put those things together from kind of owning the music from the jilted generation by the prodigy and seeing the kind of inner sleeve with the the guy cutting off the um, i don't know if you've ever seen it but there's an illustration of this guy cutting a rope bridge that separates two bits of land with a big sort of gap in the middle and on one side there's there's a sort of babylon city and policemen and that kind of thing on the other side there's this big rave and being able to kind of connect those dots and being like, okay, right. So this is what, this is where that music came from. This is what, yeah. these are the kind of parties where that kind of sound originated from and then being exposed to it was. I haven't was seen that specific one kid. that you mentioned, but I've, I've seen the one with the Glastonbury when they push the, that's kind of iconic where they push the fence down and everyone just goes in and it's basically just a free for all. Yeah, that's it. So I think it's that, that kind of counterculture, which, you know, I was exposed to at quite a young age and, the music resonated with me a lot. I was already, um, you know, trying to make my own music at that point, recording on sort of very sort of basic DIY home devices and just being exposed to the kind of music on that level. Um, and also because it was a local thing, I was I was seeing people that had been, you know, a bit more um, people that I'd been kind of influenced by growing up, you know, people like friends, brothers and people that were a bit older that lived in the same part of town as my parents. And, you know, I'd suddenly, wow, I'm now sort of part of this this scene and it felt quite exciting especially at that young age and um and so I got into DJing through that really I just oh there goes the uh <laughs> goes the, the ping pong yeah you can't get it hey hey those are that was inevitable wasn't it let me just deal with the guy when he gets to my door and put my mask on to open it to him give me two seconds mate all right and this is the joys of working from home, people. We get to uh, answer the door whenever we want. That was absolutely inevitable. So, I mean, once I was kind of exposed to the these kind of outdoor raves and the level of organisation that kind of went into them, um, I guess my first step towards that was um, starting to, you know, getting into DJing and playing music at these events. And then naturally, you know, you, you grow up as part of... Uh, you know, the younger generation of, of people that are already doing this and you see people doing it and you want to have a piece of it yourself. So um, a bunch of friends of, of mine and myself, we we kind of clubbed together and started trying to organise our own events, um, which uh, was very kind of motivated by one particular friend who he grew up on a farm and he had access to 
you know, warehouses and tools and, you know, just generally space um, for storing things. And and he also had a natural kind of drive to, um, to, to organise, I guess. He was just a very kind of motivating type of person. He, he was kind of the... Um, the driving force, I guess, behind us kind of doing our own thing. And, um, you know, I've, I worked with him closely um, through doing kind of raves. And then actually what happened in the end was, you know, we, we, we did that for a while. And then we got to a point where um, we deliberately stopped doing kind of illegal um, events because we the last one we did was um, 2000 people outside in the, the Kentish countryside. Um, it got a lot 2000 illegals probably yeah that's yeah yeah it, you know it got a lot of unmes- you know unwanted attention from the local press and the local authorities you know obviously there was a bit of an investigation that followed up but luckily none of us were um were, were actually approached directly but you know we definitely kind of um had the realization that it was time for us to kind of legitimize what we were doing and we also wanted to kind of you know when whilst we were into the kind of electronic music that was that we, we were you know, that was taking place at these events, but our interests were quite a lot more diverse and we were um, quite keen to kind of weave that into the the events that we'd started organising we'd been doing for a few years by that point. And um, we, simultaneously, a local festival was starting up and we approached them um, with a bit of a kind of case study of, of the, what we'd been doing to that point um, and some sort of aspirations about what, what we wanted to do. And just kind of pitched an idea for um, an area at their festival, and um, yeah, they were on board with it, and we we ended up sort of starting this kind of area. They gave us a field within the the quite infantile festival. They they done it for one year prior to that, and then they were expanding the following year, and we we jumped on the second year, and then for, I think for the next four years, we we had a, our own stage there with its with its own kind of surrounding field, and we just yeah gradually kind of built that up over time and um, you know the lineups kind of got bigger and the stage size got bigger the production got bigger you know more and more people got involved and took longer to plan um, and yeah we did that for four years and in between you know every year of the festival we, we were doing our own events um, in London uh, further afield and just kind of working towards um, providing something I guess that was quite unique to the local community that we were a part of um, by this point I'd, I'd moved to London and I was you know there studying for university but it was within an easy drive to get back and and put together these events Um, I did that for several years and during this time I was also you know freelancing and using the skills that I'd learned to work at other festivals um, like Glastonbury and that kind of thing going helping out people that I'd met through um, the work that we were doing and yeah eventually it led towards some more uh, work outside of the festival circuit. Yeah awesome and do you think there's I guess there's a lot of people or friends and family when you talk about events they I think they sometimes see it as a bit of like more kind of glam than it actually is because there's a lot of stress a lot of organizing but all of those different sectors of the industry that you've worked in do you think there is some crossover between those have you learned skills in one that you can transfer into others I think yeah I think that's you know as I say my at that point after you know doing this kind of coming up through doing these you know illegal events uh, and then progressing into doing legitimate events but that were still I guess quite akin um, to that, that that foundation you know working in the festival circuit which you know as you can imagine can get quite kind of quite kind of grim at some points you know when mm. the weather's bad and uh, you know you're, you're trying to kind of pull everything Especially together in the UK. absolutely you know and it really does make people quite resilient 
and you're used to dealing with levels of stress that, that at some points are, are quite significant, you know, and um, you've got some quite emergency scenarios that you've got to try and fix together, especially when it's something that's like, you know, for example, putting on a festival stage, you've got bands that might be late or bits of equipment that don't turn up and you've got to find solutions right there on the spot. Um, and I think that definitely gives you a solid foundation to be able to then go and work in other aspects of the same industry. You know, when I was when I made the, the sort of crossover from doing that to more, I don't really want to use the word corporate, but starting to work with brands essentially, um, it was it was quite smooth for me that transition because I, I I'd already been exposed to so much, so many problems to solve along the way that it made the, the kind of issues that were presenting themselves in in that environment a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, I'm still yet to have a perfect event um, because there's just always something that you need to, you can be as proactive as you like, but you do have to be kind of reactive at some points as well. So um, I was just thinking then when you were talking about it, I had an event um, a couple of years back where I had <laughs> as a, an event across different buildings and there were two people that fainted in different uh, rooms. There were over 90 and they fainted because of the heat. And it's like, then you have to be in two different places in an, in an emergency scenario. It's kind of, you're kind of flung into those those spots, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you can't can, really plan for a lot of the things which occur in the live event setting, you know? No, that's it. Can you think of a, have you got an event or a, I know you were talking about the raves, but I guess specifically one that sticks in your mind where it kind of legitimized what you were feeling about events and wanting to be in the events industry have you got like one event where you thought oh yeah yeah, this is this is the industry that I need to be in I guess I guess um, at this point in the conversation I'm still talking about my kind of formative uh, experiences with um, you know getting into this kind of industry and um, I think yeah you know I I never really considered it to be a career path for myself until I made that step into working with brands really you know mm. when you know, obviously there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a great deal of money available for the, the early stuff I was doing you know it was more just doing it purely for um, my own enjoyment I guess and, and interest um, and then you know you start to when you realize that there is there is um, you know it, there is finances available and, and a budget to work with and that you could potentially make a living off of it it does kind of change your perspective a bit but I think doing those festivals that I that I mentioned with my friends um you know back in the day that was quite a magic experience for me um in general really and it definitely made me feel that I found something I guess quite early on really at an early age which which felt like it could definitely determine the career path that I took um, and then you know that was just kind of confirmed when I started working on my first kind of marketing experiential jobs it's interesting you say that because there's a lot of people that, that they always talk about the friends. So the, the big events that they've worked at, it's not about the prestige or the uh, the money or it, it's the people that they work with. It's always that feeling that that's their, the, they're the best events that they've worked at are the ones where they get that feeling that they're with friends and they've got a camaraderie. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess a lot of people during this time have have um events is obviously it's it's a tricky one with with what's going on but a lot of people during this time have thought about upskilling in the in the arts industry or the events industry whether you like it or not in the uk apparently you you have to upskill but have you diversified or moved with the current situation have you found different ways to kind of make shit happen basically 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from, from, from what I was just, um, the part of my career I was just discussing um, a minute ago to, to where I'm at now, there's obviously quite a big gap in between there. But, um, you know, fast forward 12 years or so, I now live in Tokyo and I'm, you know, I'm based out here and I'm, I look after a team here on behalf of the company, like you said in the intro. Yeah, I think during this time, it's, it's definitely given me a bit more headspace to focus on, you know, other aspects of, of, of my job, you know, with um, things being a bit quieter on the project side of things. Um, and in terms of personal ups- upskilling, I've just been really focusing on my Japanese um, and using the time <laughs> to really kind of get myself to, to a higher level with that. You know, because it's um, it's very key, I think, to to uh, success over here. If you really want to be able to kind of make a career path yourself, that's um, I think it's communication is the most important aspect of our job, right? If you're working yeah. at events, you need to be able to communicate to people, and um, you know, if you, if you're able to do that in another language, um, especially the language of the country where you're based, then it's it's only going to benefit you. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing personally. In terms of my team, I've definitely been encouraging the guys to kind of. Well, to actually, some of them to work on their English, um, others to kind of work on other aspects, you know, kind of improving um, skills in CAD or Photoshop or, you know, Illustrator, the kind of more design-based tools. Um, but personally, I've just been working on my Japanese, really. And then also from a, from a company perspective, um, I've been investing a lot more energy in the, the aspects of my job, which when there's a lot of projects on and things are kind of, quite hectic I don't really get much of a chance to think about such as kind of how we market ourselves and um, the kind of language we use tone of voice how that's localized to the, to the market where we're based and yeah just kind of making that transition into to being a bit more a bit more of a kind of a, a, you know positioning ourselves here in Japan as um, an international company that's based here that treat that's that services both international clients and domestic clients work out kind of refine where we sit within that you know that's that's an important thing as well when you're saying about the international is like knowing you have to deal with the different these different people I mean communication as you mentioned there is is such a key one um in in any business but events specifically it just really is important um I wonder how how's the government handle things where you are I know there's it's it's a struggle for other people to kind of get things off the ground at the moment because they don't know what's happening but what's what's your general what's the general consensus over there how's the government handled things and, and where you're at at the moment what's what's the general feeling yeah I mean overall it's I think Japan I think Japan has just done a great job really there's obviously that that natural advantage where they're all there's already a culture of wearing face masks which I think is is, is from what you know, when this first started happening, you know, back at the, early, earlier in the year, um, that was something that I, I really felt would be an issue when the problems started to occur in other parts of the world. Because in Japan, it's really not a big deal for people to wear a face mask, and they'll they won't kick up a fuss about it. You know, people in Japan have been wearing face masks for over 100 years. You know, and again, caused by a pandemic initially. So people, and plus people here, I think, are a lot more. Um, there's a bit more importance placed on the greater good of society throughout, mm. throughout society and kind of um you know feeling that you're, you're you're part of something bigger rather than you know putting yourself as the the priority and um that's definitely helped i think you know it's helped sort of contain the virus uh, and the level of cases in japan have been far fewer than other parts of the world in terms of support the government's kind of you know it's it's offered quite quite decent financial support to um 
to freelancers, anyone that's running their own business um, has, has had some support from the government. Admittedly, it's not been huge, but it's been it's definitely been helpful for the people that have needed it. Um, and, you know, due to the fact that um, the cases are significantly lower here than they are in some other parts of the world, it has allowed it has allowed the government to kind of take steps back into normality, I guess. You know, I mean, at this point where we're at, life is almost kind of resumed to normal, except for the fact that you know, everyone wears face masks almost 100% of the time when they're outside their houses. Um, and when you enter an establishment, you know, you need to use antibacterial hand gel. Besides that, things are fairly back to normal. You know, there's still they're starting to let people back into stadiums. Um, you can still you can, you can go back into clubs and venues at this point. And I think people just are, are very conscious about um, you know maintaining some social distance when they're in these places. The capacities are obviously reduced, but it's um it's starting to get back to where you'd like it to be, um, which has definitely allowed the the events industry a bit of a lifeline to. Um, to kind of start heading back that way you know we're, we're definitely making that transition back into where we want to be i think um it sounds that you know from reading the news every day that um other parts of the world quite aren't quite there yet so hopefully yeah. um asia can lead a bit of an example in that regard well it's 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 good to hear some positivity around uh, what the government has been doing because i know there's a few Countries, if I interviewed someone from there, they probably wouldn't have the same response. I mean, we're talking in November now, um, 2020. Um, obviously, you're based in Japan, so I would imagine there are a lot of activations based there for the uh, Olympics. Does that mean 2021 is uh, is going to be even bigger for you? I mean, we'll have to wait and see, really. I think the Olympics is obviously um, a huge point of discussion, not just within Japan, but um, you know, globally. I think it's difficult to predict what form it will take. I, I can't at this point. I can't see the Olympics not going ahead in in some kind of way or another. Whether they're spectators or not, or whether those spectators are domestic only, is you know one potential uh, way of looking at it. I guess you know now that we're seeing live sports happening um, week in week out across all the different kind of sectors. Everything seems to be kind of heading back to normal and in a controlled environment, you know, obviously without without fans. So I think that, you know, the, the Olympics is definitely going to happen in, in one way or another. But it's whether the, all of the satellite activities that would normally take place around that will happen or not. Because, you know, obviously the spectators and the people that come into the market for that purpose um, are really huge importance to, to that kind of activation. You know, I mean, obviously... You have a lot of a lot of sponsors that are involved in the Olympics. They all want to activate. They've all got their own plans to have some kind of kind of fringe activities happening, um, and it brings a lot of people to the country and um, a lot of kind of money through tourism to to that industry. And and, and that that uh, yeah, it's um, it's difficult to see for me at this point. It's difficult to see the Olympics sort of taking the form that that we used to. You know, I, I think that you know we never we we kind of expected this to maybe be over by this point at least I did so um to, to be reaching the end of the year and um seeing kind of you know new rounds of lockdowns happening in some of the major countries it's uh quite difficult to see that being kind of over and done with by next summer and that's the that's the important thing isn't it it's you, you know you're based there um, just because you've got it contained or you have um or you've been following rules in a different way and possibly you know it, it it could be deemed as, as better in a lot of ways. Um, you can't kind of control what other countries are doing. So I guess it's harder to see 
how people can come to Japan for the Olympics from certain countries that are possibly not doing as well. Yeah, that's it, really. I think you've just got to be responsible, don't you? I mean, it's not just um, it's not just like a, a keep everybody out of Japan type scenario. It's also just cross contamination, isn't it, across different different countries in general? You know, um, you know, athletes can come from all parts of the world and all compete against each other and take things back with them. Um, not just athletes, obviously, but spectators as well. And um, I think, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a global responsibility rather than just something domestically upon Japan. Yeah, I guess talking more about the DJing side of stuff, I think there'll be a lot of talk in in the podcasts about um, music specifically because I feel like there's a lot of crossover. I think a lot of people, even within uh, sports events or or the uh, working art or fashion, they generally have a bit more of a, a that taste for music and they they love music. And I guess having someone like yourself who really is keen on their their music um i just wonder what the first vinyl or cd you bought was um what the first gig you went to and what the next gig you want to go to is oh man okay i think it's, it's interesting for me because I, I i generally i guess at least in my own head i, I keep my my work and and my sort of you no know, music stuff quite separate <laughs> these days um but to answer your question um oh man the first cassette tape I remember buying was the lightning seeds I oh, think yeah. like sugar-coated what was it called sugar-coated uh, yeah I know the one I can't oh, think man I remember yeah. buying that in Asda when I was when I was really <laughs> young but then similarly at a similar time that that Prodigy album that I mentioned earlier the music from the Jilted Generation that was definitely the first CD that I remember buying um, when I was about 10 and yeah right yeah right so i don't know if, which one came first but um well, it was I mean, all around the same kind of point in my life for sure it's funny um, as to that you mentioned because even the first one that i bought was in uh Woolworths, which doesn't exist anymore so <laughs> yeah right <laughs> the first gig i went to was was the who at the royal albert hall in 1997 that's a good one that, that, that i'm sure about i'm 100% sure about that one and I guess a bit of side trivia that my dad was in the original lineup of the Who, um, and he, we, because of that, you know, we've we've grown up. Um, well, I've grown up, I guess, um, having a connection to them and sort of knowing that the band members uh, growing up. And we, you know, we had the privilege of going backstage afterwards. And I met, I remember meeting Liam Gallagher in the dressing room, with Roger Daltrey's dressing room, which was please say, uh, it was, please say it was nice. Uh, he was all right, actually. He was really. I mean, I was. I mean, yeah, I was probably about ten years old at the time, nine years old. I have to do the maths, but um, yeah, he was young. So, um, so yeah. I, I was young. So he was really nice to me, and uh, you know, he, he he behaved himself as far as I remember from that age. And your gauge uh, from a from from if someone's a prick or not at, at ten years old, probably not that great. Uh, yeah, I guess or I was just blinded by the lights of being in Roger Daltrey's dressing room as an eleven-year-old. Yeah. And being surrounded by celebrities but um yeah that was that was the first gig i went to and then the next gig ah well actually i, I don't want to sort of talk too much about it really because it feels a bit unfair uh, with people yeah. that um that are, well i mean it feels a bit unfair for people that are still kind of um 
trapped in their house. But, um, you know, things are getting back to normal here in Japan. So um, there are events happening, which which I'm beginning to attend. Um, <laughs> maybe it's, it's best not to sort of go into too much detail to, you know, because it's not really fair on the listeners that are stuck at home and, and can't get out, you know. Now, very noble of you, Adam. Um, obviously, you were talking about the Who there. Was your mum, did, did you have a musical background? Was your whole family into music? My brother's, yeah, I'm a, my brother's a professional musician as well. Um, and he, he's, um, yeah, he's, my brother's, you know, very much so a, a professional musician. And he, outside of playing, he also um, teaches music at a university. Um, my mum, beyond loving sort of soul and disco and funk music um, didn't really have much of a musical background but she was quite fundamental in you know me and yeah. my brother's tastes in the sense of the stuff that she played in the car rides when we were kids I guess um, but yeah I mean we just I think I found my own path to music myself and my brother I, you know my brother was a bit younger than me and I definitely kind of influenced him but um, yeah we just both got it kind of grew up being into it ourselves and then we you know we had we had friends around us that were also into music and that was always the kind of the, the strong bond we had with our friends was because of music, you know, and um, uh, there's definitely something to be said as well from my, my perspective about, about skateboarding, you know, when you're into, grow up into skateboarding, it, um, it definitely introduces you to a lot of music through the videos that you're watching, the soundtracks of them and the friends that you make and the kind of stuff that they introduce you to, you're always swapping CDs and stuff with your friends. And that was definitely, um, very fundamental for my tastes as well Uh, in general I mean you know pretty much everyone that I I grew up skateboarding with has gone on to do some other kind of creative um, outlet as as an adult so um, it's it's been quite I always sing the praises of skateboarding for for kids because it just keeps people out of trouble well I mean depending on what your idea of trouble is you still hop over the old fence and um, get told off by security guards but um, you know and and um, set up 2000 uh, capacity uh, legal raves yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> that, that as well. We're coming thing. to um, the end of the podcast now. Is there is there, what what are you working on at the moment that 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 people what what's the company you're working for and and what kind of things are you you up to at the moment that you can talk about? Obviously, the contracts that maybe you have signed, but is there any way that people can kind of look at the company you're working for and, and the stuff that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so I work for a company called MKTG. They're an American company and they're part of the, um, the Dentsu Aegis Network. And um, globally, um, we have had to obviously pivot the same way that most sort of marketing and events agencies have. Uh, and fortunately, I guess we've, we've been sort of operating in some other sort of strands of business which have kind of supported us during this time. Um, you know, one thing which I'm sure you're probably going to be hearing a lot of during your during this podcast um from other our guests will be you know virtual events that's something that we've we've definitely invested in as a business to create our own platform to be able to host those um but there's other aspects as well you know um one of the one of the very um uh, interesting things that i'm that i'm involved in uh, for me at least um in our side of the business is a um a, it's quite difficult to explain I guess it's like an, a brand a brand advocacy program that we run for, for a couple of our clients which um, it's more kind of set into the retail sector and it's um, it's essentially kind of building a global network of uh, 
of staff that represent your brand and go in store at, um, consumer electric stores because that's the brands of consumer electric sector and um, go into their stores and train the store staff on the products so that they're in a better position to be able to sell them in their absence um, and kind of have better um, communications with the consumers about the products that are on sale and the differences between them and their competitors. Um, and then also they, they train internally as well within the brand, um, which is which is quite um, a separate conversation altogether. And it's not something that I'm one of the kind of um, key people involved in. But I, I do work quite closely with that aspect of, of our business. And that's been something which has um, continued during the um, the time that, that the events have been closing down. Um, and as, as I was saying earlier, you know, I've been we've been investing a lot of time in um and kind of rethinking how we operate in Japan as a whole, we've we've been very much focused on, or we were we were set up in fact to deliver work that came from international clients from abroad, um, and we haven't ever really had the time um, to invest in kind of thinking about how we market ourselves domestically and um, looking to kind of target local clients rather than kind of international ones. So that's been quite a quite a, an interesting way to spend time. And to kind of think about how we how we sort of position ourselves over here and kind of where we can fit into the landscape. Beautiful. Well, um, good luck with everything. I'm, I'm imagining kind of 2021, uh, fingers crossed, is going to be a busy year for you based there with everything that's going on. So good luck with everything. Uh, and if anyone wants to check out um, what MKTG are, uh, are doing, I'm guessing, Adam, the website's just www.mktg.com. Yep. <laughs> perfect okay um adam dawson great to speak to you thanks dan thank you